If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. It's printed right there, but if you have your Bibles, I certainly invite you to, to, to turn and, and look at them with me. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar, the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, would the the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you? Uh, Lord, would you do a work that only you can do in in taking um, these words and and by your spirit, uh, give them life to, to our very spirits? Lord, we're grateful for the promises that you have attached to what we do, even here this morning, and we rely upon them and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, we began a new series uh, going through the stories of the prophets of Elijah and Elisha, and and we will jump back into those stories 
uh, next week, but this morning we're going to do something a little different. Um, I mentioned when I was praying, right, that kind of on my mind are the stakes of, of what we're doing here. The stakes of what we do as a church, the, the stakes of, of the message are, are big. And sometimes I think we lose sight of, of how big they are. Everything we do as a church is in service basically of one message, which is the forgiveness of sins. That's the one message that, that this church is mobilized to do. That's a life and death issue. That's a heaven and hell issue. It speaks to our purpose as human beings. It speaks to why we do what we do because of who we are. Um, it's answering that fundamental question of what must I do to be right with my creator? Because things are not right. Now, why am I taking a Sunday to do this? You can see in your bulletins that we're saying this is a, a message in, in memory of someone. It's in memory of Sharon Boston. About seven years ago, Sharon was invited to church by one of our members, and she attended CPC off and on. And then really for the last three to four years, um, she was quite regular in coming. Uh, just prior to us meeting her, she had in a short span of time lost her husband and lost her quite elderly mother, and these were the last two people that she really had in her life. At first she came to this church and she experienced something of, of a familiar element that she could recognize in some of the limited church going that she had as a child. But more than anything, she found a people who welcomed her. She came to faith and was baptized in the summer of 2021, and she died just a couple of weeks ago, one month shy of her 79th birthday. Now many of you don't know who she is. You wouldn't recognize her. Of course, many of you would recognize her. So many of our ladies especially uh, diligently sought to help her in her needs, to, to, to pray with her, and to help her learn the Bible and to read the Bible. But Sharon um, profoundly had no family. She didn't really have any friends, which is why we came to know her. And she felt welcomed here. She, she found something of a family in this congregation that she couldn't find elsewhere. She found in this place a people who did love her and care for her. And we got a front row seat at seeing God work. The God who delights to call workers in the 11th hour. She went to the hospital back in September. She never came home. Um, when she could communicate, anyone who would visit her in the hospital, when she could communicate clearly, she would always say she can't wait to get back to church. She never did. So the elders and I were talking. What do we do for Sharon? What do we do for her? Should we have a funeral service? Uh, who would come to the funeral service? What would that look like? And we decided, is there anything more appropriate than on Sunday morning proclaiming the gospel that she needs and what we need to? Because I think we're reminded of a couple of things just through that little spiel I gave. And the two things are the absolute sacredness of this community. Right, gospel communities all across the world that, that offer a place of belonging because I don't know where else someone like that is supposed to find it anymore in this world. We're profoundly disconnected people. We're a lonely people. And yet this is a place where you are welcome. And I think that's true. I think our culture maybe would say that the church is not a welcoming community, and, and I disagree. The church has a lot of bad PR. I agree with a lot of the bad PR, but this is not one of them. This is a place of belonging. And it's a place of belonging because it's based on this, this unparalleled powerful message that we proclaim and receive together. 
that the only thing that unites any of us is that we're a forgiven people. And so as the only family that she really had, we thought it would be fitting to consider the Savior Sharon needed. And that's what we'll do right now. That's why we're in John 8. This kind of hostile confrontation. And yet in John 8, what we see, right, we see, we see Jesus for who he is. That's why it escalates so fast. That's why the temperature in the room starts rising, is that the audience Jesus has recognizes exactly who he is. And that means something for all of us. And so we're going to get three points as we work through John 8, as we, as we reflect on our Savior, going back to the stakes of, of what the gospel speaks to. It speaks to our selfishness, it speaks to all of our bad habits, but at the end of the day, it's heaven and hell, and it's life and death. So three, three things we'll see. First of all, what we're going to see is that Jesus exposes our need. That's the first point, and, and it's so crucial to understanding the teachings of Jesus. He exposes our need as human beings. Secondly, he reveals his ability to meet that need. And then thirdly, he demands a response. He exposes a need, he reveals his ability to meet that need, and then he demands a response. All right, so first of all, the first thing Jesus does in our passage is that he exposes our deepest need. Now, let's get a little bit of the broader context of John 8. It takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths in Jerusalem at the temple. Remember Jesus and his crew, they're from Galilee. That's in the north of the country, a relatively insignificant part of of Israel, relatively insignificant. So they have to make pilgrimage with so many others from all over the region. They're all coming to Jerusalem for what is a celebratory festival. Uh, It's called the Feast of Booths because the the family units, they would come and they would build little shelters that were commemorating and celebrating the way that God delivered them out of Egypt and provided for them in the wilderness. And the two main events is they would do the ceremonial kind of drawing of water. And that was to symbolize God's provision to the people. And then even more spectacularly, the, the best part, which we can only kind of imagine, were four 75 foot high menorahs like a Hanukkah, right? Four menorahs, 75 feet tall, filled with oil, burning at night. And as the candles burned, people would celebrate, they would feast, they would dance, they would sing, they would worship the Lord. And it's while those candles are burning that Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. And he talks about his intimacy with the Father as the light of the world. And how the Father has sent him, and this is where John's gospel is so good, because Jesus keeps saying when the Son is lifted up, when the Son is exalted, the Son is most glorified, not when he is enthroned lifted up, but when he is quite literally crucified and lifted up. And here's what's happening, is that he has an audience. You, you can get from our passage in the, in the broader reading of John 8, that so many people are, are finding Jesus appealing He's compelling. They're starting even to believe him, but there are questions, right? Who does this guy think he is? Why does he talk about authority in the way that he does? And that sets us up for our reading right now. People find him compelling, and yet they also make them uncomfortable. He he seems to be saying too much, and that's the conflict. And, And really, I think the conflict here is the same conflict that we experience in our own day and age, which is basically... Jesus is is good. Jesus is great. Um, I'm so glad Jesus works for you, uh, but don't put that on me. Like, I'm glad that you find Jesus compelling. I mean, he really is one of the world's great moral thinkers, moral philosophers, and teachers. But as soon as that makes demands on my life, I don't want anything to do with that. That's the conflict we see here. 
Because what Jesus is doing and where he starts to go with his audience is he does the hard work of diagnosing the human condition. Jesus is doing the hard work of bringing us to see our needs. And he's a good physician, isn't he? Because uh, he gets to the root of the sickness. One of the things we can say about Jesus is that he is not just concerned with the symptoms. He wants to go behind the symptoms and root out what is making us so sick. We want the good physician to be an expert in spiritual palliative care. Just provide comfort. Just provide rest. But he's a surgeon. And he starts to make his cuts. And that's here in John 8. At its foundation, Jesus is addressing the problem with humankind. Look at 8.31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's one of those enduring sayings of Jesus. You can imagine this graffitied on a building. Almost like a political statement, right? The truth will set you free. How many tattoos have been tattooed of that one line? The truth will set you free. It's beautiful, isn't it? It sounds profound, divorced from its context. But but notice the response when Jesus says that. Uh, The people aren't saying, man, this guy's deep. They're not saying, amen, that the truth will set you free. They're saying, who do you think you are to say that we're not free? Who do you think you are saying we need freedom? We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? There's an irony here, isn't there? The children of Abraham are kind of always enslaved. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the the Persian Greco uh, Empire, the the Roman Empire, they're under that rule at this time. And so there's a certain irony there in terms of, of the children of Abraham kind of always seemingly being enslaved. But of course, what they're saying is, of course, the the Romans are occupying us, but they can't get in here. Like spiritually, we know who we are, and we are are free. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, you know, it's not the well who need the physician, it's the sick, and the audience here would agree. And they'd say, because we are the well. The problem is they are blind to their need, and so Jesus responds to their objections by identifying just how deep their needs go. So in verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So the problem, this is pretty simple, isn't it? What's the problem with with humankind? What's the problem with men and women and children? Enslavement's the problem. We're slaves. The problem is that we are born in bondage and we live in bondage. And I think this is so key because what if Jesus was just a good teacher? He's just kind of cruel, isn't he? He's just pointing out what's wrong. You know, yeah, you're you're a slave. Good luck. There's no hope being provided. I think it's true that people, by and large, if they could maybe design their Messiah, he would be a political Messiah. I think that's true. It's true in every age to some extent. But they really want that, that, that political Messiah. But Jesus is thinking, that doesn't solve the problem, does it? Because the problem is, is internal. The problem is that you are spiritual slaves. And it's the religious who are most offended. Who are you to say that I'm enslaved. And so what we can do, I think, at this point is we can strip the scene down to its most basic elements. We can kind of get rid of the giant menorahs that we're picturing in the background. We can look behind the festival of booths. We can, we can look behind this taking place in Jerusalem with the children of Abraham. And what we can see is a scene that plays out over and over and over again. 
Because the Jews, of course, are just stand-ins for us. I'm not enslaved. I can fix my own problems. I I know I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. I'm certainly not in, in bondage. I pay my taxes. I'm a pretty decent, reasonable person. And so who are you to tell me what I need? But that's not the message of Jesus. Repentance and faith begins with the confession that I am not okay. And I cannot fix myself. That's a counterintuitive message, and, and we're always tempted, and, I, and, I, and some of it, I think, feels okay to do, where we would say, you know, in kind of like a, a modern American kind of mentality, this is like the most counterintuitive message, but it's just as counterintuitive to this ancient traditional culture, isn't it? Who are you to tell me that I am enslaved? I think one of the, the, the concerning problems of the church, the, the Christian community in every generation is that there is always this lingering cloud over churches that at least gives off the idea that there is something savable about us. I think that's a problem in every generation of Christians. A lingering cloud that says there's something that, that God finds pleasing in us that makes us savable to him. But that's not true. And that's toxic. In the end, it's grace all the way down. The only thing that discriminates is God's grace. See, what this means is that so much of our own lack of compassion toward others is how less serious we take sin than Jesus does. We see others as weak and we say, just become strong. We see others as ignorant and just say, you need to be educated. And Jesus sees slaves. And they can't free themselves. And so Jesus, right, in his sinless perfection, he aches with pity for people that he sees in bondage. But he comes not just to offer sympathy. He comes to offer liberation. He diagnoses humanity with the condition, you are slaves to sin, and he alone is qualified to break that slavery. And that leads to our second point. He exposes the need, but then he reveals himself as able to save He's in this unique position to save. And so what we see in this conversation is the tension just keeps rising, right? The, the, the temperature in the room, it just keeps getting hotter. It's, it, it's escalating anger toward one another. And yet what Jesus keeps returning to is, is the heart of his message, which is the heart of him as a savior, because Jesus is in this particular business of saving sinners, right? Of saving those who are enslaved. Jesus has not come to condemn those enslaved, but to liberate them. John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we have compassion, that's important, but liberation. The Son has come to set sinners free, not to leave people in their sins, but to release them and to liberate them and to give them life, to give them a life of love toward God and love toward neighbor, a life of living as you and I were created to live, not slaves to our passions, not driven by our appetites, not slaves to our self-destruction. And the conflict continues, and and it begins to escalate over this kind of spiritual paternity dispute. Did you notice that? They keep talking about who's your father, right? Jesus' opponents insist that that Abraham is their father, and Jesus says, if that were true, you would be aligned with Abraham's mission, which is me. They say, not only is Abraham our father, in verse 41, God is our father. And Jesus said, boy, if that were true, you would love me. You would really know me. 
The single test in the scriptures of whether or not you know God is quite simple, isn't it? Do you love his son? Do you love his son? Single test in the scriptures of whether or not you know God. Do you know and do you love his son? The clearest revelation of God is standing before them. Maybe outside of the garden, this is, this is the first time in Jesus' ministry, throughout his whole ministry, where when, when you are in the presence of Jesus, you are in the presence of the essence of God. Remember Moses, Moses wants to see God, and, and God says, that's not safe for you, buddy. So he hides him in the, in the, in the rock, and he passes be, behind Moses in just the back parts of his glory, whatever that means. But here before these, these, this, this audience, right, that is the essence of God. Jesus, fully God, fully divine. He stands before them. Maybe an illustration of this is that the, the Jews are something like ancient astronomers who are looking at their charts and graphs of the stars, and then Jesus comes with a Hubble telescope to show the glory of the stars, but they're not interested. They just want to look at their graphs and their charts. But something, someone greater is standing before them. Hebrews 1 puts this so beautifully. Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Verse 48. The temperature keeps rising. They accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan and of having a demon. The Samaritan charge is weird, but it makes a lot of sense because Jesus is telling the heirs of Abraham that he's not your father. And there's only one person who would do that in this time, and that's a Samaritan. Because Samaritans would say, Abraham is our father. By the way, they were wrong. That's not true at all. And so for Jesus to sound like a Samaritan, they accuse him of being one. I think that's where that's going. That makes a lot of sense. And they're also saying to challenge our pedigree is demonic. You must have a demon. And Jesus replies by reiterating his pedigree. I honor my father. And then again, the heart of Jesus, right? I do not seek my own glory. He could, right? He had every right to seek his own glory, but he rested in the approval of his father. And then he reminds us of why he's there. Stakes, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jews think of all of their heroes, Abraham, the prophets. And they say all of those heroes, they died. And so what you're telling us is that you think you're greater than, than, than these heroes. Whom do you make yourself to be? And Jesus says, I'm just telling you the truth. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews respond, this guy isn't even 50 years old, which is probably a marker that he's a wiser, older guy in the community. You're not even 50, and, and you're telling us that you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus says, of course, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. One prominent commentator says that there's no clear implication of divinity in all of the Gospels. It would have been natural and expected, the grammar is all there, for Jesus to say, before Abraham was, I was. But he says, before Abraham was, I am. People understood it because what did they do? They picked up stones to throw at Jesus. But Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. The same word, the same title, the same message, right? When Moses is sent back to Pharaoh and he says, but, but who am I supposed to say sent me? And the Lord responds, I am. 
I am. And so Jesus identifies this, this ultimate fulfillment of everything. This ultimate fulfillment of all of Abraham's hopes and joys, all of Abraham's longings and expectations. And he, he identifies them all fulfilled in him. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, he, he puts words in Jesus' mouth to get to the heart of what, what, what the Lord is doing. He says this, he says, Abraham had no other object during his whole life than to see my kingdom flourish. He longed for me when I was absent. You despise me when I am present. The day of the Lord is here. The day of salvation has arrived. The day of God's kingdom has, is here, and it's in Jesus' day. So Jesus reveals that he's come to meet those needs. And the last point we'll look at is that Jesus makes demands, which is really saying, what, what do we do with this? What must we do now? And Jesus keeps telling us what to do. A couple of times we have it very clear, the demands that Jesus is making. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Those are clear demands, aren't they? We have to abide in the word and we have to keep his word, which of course, now the next question is, what does that mean? What is this word that we need to keep? We need to ask, what is the word that Jesus is proclaiming in this passage? And what we need to do is we have to stay within this passage, don't we? It doesn't make any sense to go to the Ten Commandments or to go find another word that Jesus is proclaiming because he's telling us now to keep the word. So what is the word that Jesus is referring to? It's him. He is the word. It's to believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Because when you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then everything falls into place. Everything else is transformed. It's like seeing a black and white picture that, that over time becomes technicolor, right? And we see the color wash over the screen. Our relationships are changed. Our understanding of who we are has changed. Our understanding of the world has, has changed. Our understanding of the law of God has changed because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of the father sent from heaven, perfect in righteousness. He's not another prophet announcing what is wrong, but he is a savior that has come to save. Let me paint this contrast for us in terms of how Jesus, particularly in John 8, is not setting himself up as another prophet. Uh, let me give two examples. Think of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the great calling scenes of a prophet. If, if, you, if you remember the story from Isaiah 6, Isaiah is a good guy. He's a righteous guy. He's called by the Lord, and he is ushered into this vision of heaven's throne room, and he stands before the holiness of God, and his response is, woe is me, right? He has a panic attack. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He is a righteous man. He is a good man. He stands before the holiness of God. And what team does Isaiah know he plays for? He plays for Israel. He is a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Let's talk about Daniel. Uh, Daniel we know way more about than Isaiah. And Daniel is a spectacular person, isn't he? He is a righteous and faithful man. And yet we have this prayer from Daniel 9 where he prays, We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. See, the prophets of God don't stand apart from the people, but with the people. And Jesus here emphasizes that in the most crucial of ways, get this, he is not one of us. He is not a man of unclean lips. 
He is not a man who has done wrong and acted wickedly. He does not find himself among the enslaved, but he comes from the outside as a liberator who has come to set the captive free. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer had had a great illustration of Advent, the coming of Jesus, when he compared it to a prison cell, and it has certain potency because he's in a prison cell. He's in a Nazi concentration camp at the time. And he says it's just like the coming of Jesus because all we can do inside of a prison cell is we can wait and we can hope. We can do this or that, but they're all negligible things. They don't do anything because the problem is that the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. Isn't that what Jesus is conveying in this passage? You cannot save yourselves, but God can, and that is why I am here. The salvation that Abraham caught a glimpse of and longed for is here. The God of steadfast love, heaven bent on saving a sinful and wayward people is here. The one with the key to unlock the prison doors of our own sinful destruction is here. The one who has come to conquer your greatest enemies of sin and death is here. And this, friends, is always why the message of the gospel is is of incomparable beauty and power. He has no solidarity with our sin. He is the only one free. Then why in the world did he join us? Because he did. In love and mercy, he joined us. The innocent one stood with the guilty. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? Can you even imagine a greater love than this? And so what better word is there to keep? What better word is there to abide in than this word of Jesus? All of the sins that enslave us, every last one poured out, emptied on him. So friends, to cling to his cross, that is to be free indeed. He who did not deserve death subjected himself under the power of death and came out the other side, death's conqueror. Our hope for Sharon, our hope for each other, is that death is no longer the last word, but entrance into the presence of our good shepherd in the fullness of joy as we wait to rise again in glory just like him. Preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us that it is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. That's a good word. It's a true word because it reminds us of the stakes of what we do. It reminds us of the power of the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus and his work. And so friends, my word to you, the word I need to hear is abide in Jesus. Abide in his word because there and there alone you will find freedom and you will find the fullness of life. Let's pray. Father, my prayer more than any, anything else this morning is that, that the beauty of this word, what, what better place to abide? What better word to keep than to keep always before our minds and our hearts the greatness and glory and beauty of Jesus? To remember, Lord, that there, there is nothing in, in us that, that makes us savable. In our natures, we too are enslaved slaves to our sins, slaves to wickedness, and yet you, Lord, intervened. 
out of grace and love and in mercy, you intervened. So Lord, would you shape us by this word? Would we not just come to an intellectual understanding of who you are, but would our hearts desire you? Would our wills be shaped by this better word? Lord, would you do that work among us? We thank you and we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.